Hello, I'm Mark Price, and welcome to my podcast, Meet the Business Author. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that businesses and individuals work, particularly how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can transform an organisation. I'm building a platform at Engaging.Works with the world's biggest business library, where anyone can come and search for information and guidance on their working life. In this series, I'll be speaking with a number of prominent business authors whose books are available to buy on the business library. I'll be speaking to them about their book, what lessons we can take from them, and what they think about the future of working life and business. I'm delighted to say this afternoon that uh, I'm sitting in the drawing room at the Goring Hotel, uh, drinking coffee and talking on this Meet the Business Author podcast with the Emeritus Professor of Politics at Oxford University, Archie Brown. Now, you might think it's uh, a bit extraordinary for me to be talking to uh, somebody who's uh, made their career uh, in the academic world of history and politics about business. Uh, but uh, just two years ago now, Archie wrote a book called The Myth of Strong Leaders, uh, Political Leadership uh, in the Modern Age, which was recommended by Bill Gates as one of his top five books of 2016. So, Archie, were you surprised that uh, Bill Gates recommended your books as one of his favourite reads of the year? I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I, I know he's a very intelligent man, so that, that was nice of him. Um, but uh, I must say that it did more for sales than several reviews in national newspapers. Um, he carries a lot of weight, so the American edition was promptly reprinted. Do you just want to set out for listeners the, the thesis behind your book uh, in terms of the myth of strong leadership? I think for a very long time I've been wary and distrustful of over-mighty leaders. As long ago as the 1960s I wrote a long article in an academic journal called Prime Ministerial Power about the power of the British Prime Minister. At that time I was arguing against um, the thesis that Prime Ministerial Government had replaced Cabinet Government. I thought it was more complicated than that, but I also was against the idea that the Prime Minister should be over-mighty and should be, have the last word on everything. Now, since then, in fact, prime ministers have become stronger vis-à-vis their colleagues than they were then. So that notion of prime ministerial government may be closer to the truth now than it was then. But it's something I think is a, a most unfortunate development. Then for much of my career, I studied communist countries, and the Soviet Union in particular, and that led naturally to an emphasis on leadership because power was so centralised there, looking at the Politburo and General Secretary. Um, And so political leadership has been a big focus of my research over the years. And also America. Yes, certainly America, yes. And in the latest book, it's um, in principle political leadership worldwide. It's, It's a very broad comparative historical look at political leadership. And I spent a lot of time in the United States as visiting professor at Yale, Columbia, University of Texas and Austin and so on. So I'm quite familiar with American politics. And you call the book the myth of strong leadership. So what is the myth? Well, I think there's a myth in more sense than one. Um, One is the the myth that um, what we want above all is a strong leader, that um, of all the qualities you look for in a leader, strength is the thing you should be aiming for. 
in my view, there are many qualities which are more valuable in a leader than strength. And I define strength as a leader who maximizes power, concentrates as much power as possible in his or her hands, and wants to take all the big decisions. And then I think there's the myth in the other sense that the leaders in democracies are not quite as powerful as we often think they are. And we you know, talk about the prime minister doing this, that, or the other thing. And yet there are only 24 hours in the prime minister's day. And so in practice, um, if the prime minister is the kind of person who concentrates a huge amount of power in his or her office, a lot of that power de facto flows to the prime minister's aides. And you find that somebody like um, the principal aide to the prime minister is the most enthusiastic supporter of concentrating ever more power in the prime minister's hands. So Johnson Powell, Johnson Powell, who was chief of staff for Tony Blair, said the guilty secret of British politics is not that the prime minister is too powerful, but isn't powerful enough. Um, the prime minister has to try to persuade people. You can't just tell them what to do. Well, for Johnson Powell, that was unfortunate. For me, it's a very good thing if the Prime Minister has got to persuade people and make a case. And if he or she can't persuade them, it may be that the case is deeply flawed. And you make the case that the leader of a political party has little sway over the electoral outcome. Now, I wouldn't go so far as that. Um, but rather, the leader isn't as important in electoral outcomes as everyone seems to think. Right. Um, I mean, a leader can be very important, um, and up to a point, a leader is important. That's quite a complicated picture, but one shouldn't make a straight assumption that um, the victory for the party is a victory for the Prime Minister. And, and there are two more observations that you make, uh, or I draw out about political leaders. One is that the pool they get to paddle in most of all is foreign policy, and that doesn't always turn out well. And the second uh, is the thought that as time goes by and they become more successful, then they're more prone to make mistakes. So, in, in your own words, how, how would you draw out those two themes from the board? I think that there's no way around the fact that the Prime Minister is going to be heavily involved in foreign policy because a lot of diplomacy now is done at head of government level, uh, partly because of the speed of communications. Um, so ambassadors are still important, but they're not as important as they were 100 years ago. Um, but it is nevertheless unfortunate, usually, if a prime minister ignores the foreign office um, and doesn't listen to expert opinion there. I think that, yes, the prime minister got to be involved, but the foreign secretary should be very much involved too. And then the, the bit that you draw out about um, believing your own publicity, the amount of time you spend in office, and the dangers of believing your own publicity. Yes, the longer a person is in the same office, um, the more there is a risk of them thinking that um, they know more than everybody else. And um, you know, it's often said that if Margaret Thatcher had gone voluntarily a couple of years earlier, her reputation had been higher. Um, might be true for Blair as well, though he damaged it quite a lot with the Iraq War, which wasn't so very far in. Um, anything like 10 years or certainly above 10 years, they become overconfident. And in terms of your, um, your views of the different political systems, because you're an expert on Russia, uh, America uh, and the UK, and of course at the moment we've got a President Trump, uh, a President Putin and uh, Prime Minister Johnson. So how would you compare, contrast uh, those different leaders and the system that they operate in? 
I think all three are stretching somewhat the, the powers of, the, of their office, and um, that's not for the good. I mean, Trump is an extraordinary case because you know the United States prides itself on its checks and balances, and you know I'd have tended to argue that it's very hard for an American president to be an overmighty strong leader, precisely because of the powers of the judiciary, powers of Congress. But um, with Republican presidencies um, and Trump's luck in having vacancies in the Supreme Court, he's got a conservative majority in the Supreme Court, and of course in the Senate he's got a majority. So the constraints on him are not as strong as they should be. And then you know his practice of making policy by tweet, you know, without consulting anybody very much, this is an extraordinary extension of presidential power. And so, you know, really important foreign policy decisions are being taken on a whim by the president. Now, this is a startling example of how dangerous it is to put so much power in one person's hands, especially if it's the biggest military power in the world. Johnson here, um, in the early days of a premiership, um, quite a lot of scope is usually given by um, his or her party to that person, so it's too early to say um, how he's going to do, but um, he starts off with a certain amount of goodwill from within his party, but at the same time he's also um, acted very roughly, and, and people who've been in the Conservative Party a lot longer than Boris Johnson um, are now sidelined and have lost the party whip. So I think in Britain, traditionally, um, parties have been successful when they've been fairly broad, and any serious political party contains people of different views, otherwise you're just a little sect. So it's quite dangerous when you know, a whole wing of the party finds itself sidelined. And in the book you talk um, positively about um, uh, Alfonso uh, Suarez, the uh, former Prime Minister of Spain. So. What would you draw out for the listeners about his style and what he did that made him, to your mind, a, a strong leader? Well, that was also one of the things that Bill Gates uh, drew out. I mean, he was <clears throat> quite impressed by what he learned about Adolfo Suarez from my book. Um, but Suarez was a high bureaucrat in the Franco regime, so there weren't any great expectations of him being you know, a great democratizer. But not so very long after... Franco's death, the king appointed him prime minister, and he set about pluralizing and democratizing the Spanish political system, and he didn't want to do it in any way by decree, he wanted to carry as many people as possible with him, and the first person he went to was um, Santiago Carrillo, the leader of the Communist Party, who had been in jail, and he won the Communists over uh, for acceptance of a constitutional monarchy, which is incredible because, you know, the Spanish Civil War was Republicans um, <coughs> against the, the Francoites. Um, so it was harder to win over the socialists and Felipe Gonzalez, but eventually did. And he had to make lots of concessions along the way. And then the new constitution, which was very collegially worked out, um, he uh, eventually it was approved by a referendum of over 90% of the people and he persuaded the Franco-appointed legislature to abolish itself to make way for a new parliament. So, you know, there's this collegial coalition-building style of leadership, and Spain is held up as a kind of classic example of successful transition from authoritarian rule to a democracy, and um, Adolfo Suarez played a tremendously important part in that. 
he was the key figure in the transition to democracy. And then the socialist prime minister, Felipe González, was an equally important figure in the consolidation of democracy in Spain. And if you were to ask, I suspect, a lot of people on the street, they would rattle out to you uh, uh, the names of people they said were strong leaders like Thatcher or, or maybe even Trump today or Churchill. And they wouldn't necessarily talk about those leaders that had that kind of conciliatory or maintenance style. So why, why do you think people tend to think that those kind of single-minded individuals that bring power to themselves are better or more successful? Well, I think perhaps one of the respectable reasons is that the people think that only this very strong personal leadership can get necessary change introduced, that uh, if it's too collegial, then it'll be a kind of lowest common denominator style of leadership. Um, though that's not necessarily so, because if you look at the two governments in the post-war period in this country, which have affected the greatest change in different directions, there were the Labour government led by Attlee, 1945 to 51, and the Conservative government led by Margaret Thatcher, 1979 to 1990. Um, but they were led in completely different ways. I mean, as we've already discussed, um, you know, Attlee's style was um, collegial, and um, he was a very good and crisp um, chairman of the cabinet, but uh, ministers were allowed to get on with the job. There were cabinet committees that really worked, um, and he didn't try to impose his will in every area of policy and did hardly any area of policy. The one he took big, the big, greatest interest in was defence, and he had a real influence there. Um, whereas Margaret Thatcher, as we know, wanted to impose her will everywhere she could. Um, so very different style, and they both got a lot done, but I mean, it illustrates the point that there's more than one way of introducing substantial change in a country. And as for Winston Churchill, I mean, during the war, people close to him said he would come up, you know, with six or seven or eight ideas a day, and one would be brilliant and the others would be unworkable. And the, the generals, the, chief, the chiefs of staff, had to tell him which ones were unworkable. And he had to accept that. And he, of course he did accept it. Um, and you know, contrast that with Stalin. You know, one reason why the Soviet Union lost as many as 27 million people during the Second World War was that Stalin you know, took arbitrary decisions and nobody could contradict him even if the military commanders knew it was crazy, suicidal, to defend this particular point and not retreat, um, Stalin, you couldn't contradict Stalin. Of course, you could contradict uh, Churchill. He, he might be annoyed at the time, but anyway, he accepted it. And in terms of political systems, you've already drawn out examples of people who were both in uh, authoritarian states and democratic countries that um, were on the spectrum. Do you have a view about which kind of political system tends to draw out a particular kind of leadership style that's either beneficial or not? I suppose um, countries with more proportional um, electoral systems, um, reducing coalition governments, um, they would tend to have more collegial leaderships because the, the leader is bound to do deals with other parties. And so you know, some of the best examples of more collegial leadership have to be found in the Scandinavian countries. The lessons that you draw out, 
do you see there being relevance to business? Clearly Bill Gates saw a relevance, but, but do you see a relevance? I think there must be. I mean, I think in any... I mean, you're the one who knows about business, not me. But uh, I think in any walk of life, um, to seek out <coughs> contrary views and a diversity of view is one way of avoiding terrible mistakes. And um, the more one person thinks that you know, they've got all the answers and they're wiser than everyone else, the more likely they are to um, run into serious trouble. So you know, whether it's academic life or business, even the military, when you're planning a co an operation as distinct from carrying it out, um, a lot of discussion and a lot of um, willingness to challenge conventional wisdom, I think, um, goes a long way. So if you were thinking about how a business is organised around a chairman, a CEO, a board, um, senior management cohort, middle management cohort, junior management and um, uh, the remainder of the employees, how might you think about structuring things, given your understanding of the political world, to try and get the best outcomes in terms of leadership? I think that um, <coughs> in politics... <coughs> I mean, you've got a lot of government by committee, and in a business, um, you wouldn't necessarily want to have all of standing committees, but you could have ad hoc groups of people who've got expertise in that particular area. I, I, mean, I really feel I'm on uh, getting on thin ice and if I say anything about business, but um, it's just got to be the case that um, the kind of business tycoon, and I know quite a few of them around, you know, who think they know it all and they finish up like Robert Maxwell. Um, I mean, that's, that's absolutely the opposite of, of, of what I should, uh, a well-run business um, requires, it seems to me. Um, and so the general point about um, seeking disparate views, not pulling rank on people, but being willing to listen to contrary points of view, that is surely beneficial um, in the long run for a business, I would have thought. If there's a business leader listening to this podcast now, what, um, what would you draw out for them in terms of the things that you've learned about strong leadership in politics, what works and what doesn't work, that they might think about implementing? Well, I think the kind of criteria of good leadership which I look for in politics should apply to other walks of life. I mean, we look for, in the first place, integrity. And that's really top of the list. Um, and... Um, then, you know, intelligence, um, articulateness, uh, willing to listen to disparate views, having a good memory. Um, the vision, of course, is, is tremendously valuable if, if a person has it, um, and the uh, you know, ability to look a bit further ahead. Um, uh, sometimes courage is required, um, certainly in politics, no doubt in business as well. Um, so there are many qualities um, which uh, I think apply to leadership in pretty well any walk of life. Very good. And is there a book or books that you've read that have strongly influenced your thinking? Um, I'm a great reader of memoirs, for better or worse, and um, the, you just have to read a great many in order to get um, something out of them. Um, and then there's some very good biographies. I mean, there's this new biography and three third volume's just come out by Charles Moore of Margaret Thatcher. That's a remarkable biography. So I think there's a lot to be uh, learned there. Archie, thank you very much indeed. Uh, congratulations on your book, The Myth of Strong Leaders. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I hope that people enjoy reading your book as much as I have, as much as Bill Gates has. 
and they draw out of it lots of lessons and parallels about the pitfalls of perceived strong leaders and some of the things they might learn for the business world. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more in this series, please go to engaging.works where you can buy the book and browse over 80,000 other business titles. See you again next time. Thank you.